here. And uh, I guess I'm preaching this morning. So, <laughs> so welcome. Um, in a minute, we're going to pray and get into it. Uh, your elders kind of been going through a process of uh, learning, discerning our spiritual gifts and other gifts. And uh, we've been doing this for several months. And a couple of months ago, we uh, we used this particular methodology and we ranked our uh, a number of gifts, about 12 different potential gifts, from 1 being the lowest to 10 being the highest. And I confess that... Uh, I made a one in creativity. (laughs) I was not alone. (laughs) But although I'm not terribly creative and not awful original, when I see a good thing, I grab it. And so let's, let's assume the prayer posture that Ryan taught us last week. The posture of expectation and anticipation of receiving. And let's go to the Lord. Father God, we give you glory this morning. And I confess, Lord, that I am but a man. And when I put on this microphone and stand in this place, I'm tempted to uh, seek glory. But Lord, I declare this morning that I don't want to rob you of any glory. Lord Jesus, we seek to lift you high. Because we know that when you are lifted high, you will draw all men to you. And Holy Spirit, we expect you to teach us and to guide us into all truth this morning. And we wait to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the first Sunday of January this year, we began a study of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Paul's pastoral letters. And they are written from the old warhorse evangelist and church planner, Paul, to the young pastors into whose charge Paul has committed the care and direction of the two churches in Ephesus and Crete. Dates are sort of up for debate, but I believe that 1 Timothy and Titus were both written in the, uh, uh, in the mid-60s A.D., after Paul's release from house arrest in Rome that was discussed in the closing chapters of Acts. Second Timothy was probably written a couple of years later from Rome's dreaded Mamertine dungeon where Paul awaited his execution under Nero's brutal reign. Second Timothy has a particular feeling of foreboding and despair, but I have to believe that Paul, in writing the first two letters, knows that his days of ministry are drawing to a close and there is a sense of urgency in conveying crucial information and instruction to the young pastors and their churches. We here at Three Rivers believe that the instructions contained in these letters are as vital for the church now as they were 2,000 years ago. Based largely on these letters, we have accordingly ordered our governance as a plurality of elders with a body of deacons administering membership care. But these letters are much more than instructions for governing a church. They are primarily concerned with the purpose of the church 
which is to proclaim a gospel, to proclaim the gospel, which will transform the hearer's lives into lives of apparent, observable, culture-changing godliness. Well, any good fictional story is built around conflict and struggle. You know, the dark side of the force and the good side of the force. Although God's story is not fiction, from the very early pages, a conflict, indeed a war, has developed. And the battle was raging on as Paul's heroic days of fighting the good fight were drawing to an end. Paul's letters are no less than battlefield orders to the ones who will succeed him, as we see from verse 18 of the first chapter of 1 Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. We pick up the story today with the first five verses from chapter 4. Josh last preached from 1 Timothy 3, 14-16 on April the 27th, a couple of months ago now. And in order to understand today's passage, we really have to look at those verses as well as a few following today's passage. So let's open the book. And get your fingers limbered up. We're probably going to go from Genesis to Revelation this morning. It's just one story, you know. First Timothy three fourteen. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, to teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from food, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have, have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The Greek word translated now in the ESV, at the first uh, verse here in uh, chapter 4, is a weak conjunction, and often it is translated but. The NASB translates it but. And I think that, that the usage of that word 
really draws attention to the contrast of these verses in, in the first of chapter 4 with those that precede them and those that follow them. Proper behavior in the household of God is based on godliness. Chapter 3, 14 to 16 tells us what godliness is and chapter 4, verse 6 and following tells us how to train for godliness. In uh, 4, 1 to 5, in contrast, tells us about ungodliness and ungodliness in the church. The first verse for today also very clearly tells us the story's protagonist and antagonist, the two opposing generals, if you will, the spirit and Satan with his demons. Before we put these verses under a microscope, let's back back out of it and look at the big picture. The preacher says that there's nothing new under the sun. That which has been will be. So let's go back to where the story begins. Let's go back to the beginning of the war. Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to read this chapter. Uh, I, I invite you to look look down through it. Uh, you're all familiar with it. Uh, I want to read just the first few verses and talk about some of the rest of it. Now, the servant was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty. Crafty. It implies an agenda, doesn't it? It implies an agenda and a strategy. The agenda, destroy what God has declared good. Particularly the relationship God has with His children. The strategy, deception. Ideas that sound good have a ring of truth about them, but are ultimately insidiously destructive. You see, Satan here gives a choice, not a command. Wouldn't you like to know what God knows? Doesn't sound too dangerous, does it? But the real opportunity presented here is knowing what God knows, you can decide for yourself what you want. You surely will not die, he says. And they don't right away. But it says their eyes were opened. Eyes that had been reverently focused on God and His desires for good were now opened downward to the things of the world and what just looked shiny and enticing. First battle goes to the serpent. I can't go through the next few millennia of conflict, so let's skip ahead to the immediate context of Paul's pastoral letters. As we know, Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus provides a great deal of additional information, but let's begin by looking at the references to the Ephesian church beginning in Acts 18.18. 
We see that Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila, arrived in Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, most likely around 51 A.D. Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue for a brief period and left Priscilla and Aquila there when he returned to Antioch. The powerfully eloquent Jew Apollos came to Ephesus and mentored by Priscilla and Aquila, he boldly and effectively taught the things concerning Jesus. Apollos soon left about Corinth. We're familiar with that and his work there. And Paul, at the beginning of his third missionary journey, arrived back in Ephesus probably as early as 52 A.D. Immediately, Paul began to preach, to teach and preach about the Holy Spirit. I'll begin uh, from 19 verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I dare say that that might be the response in a number of different churches now. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, there were about 12 men in all. When I don't want to get bogged down with tongues, uh, prophesying is not just telling the future, it's preaching. It's proclaiming. It's telling people about Jesus powerfully. We don't know all the manifestations here, but we know very clearly the Holy Spirit was on the scene and the Holy Spirit was showing off. Mitch, I love it when the Holy Spirit shows off. And this final statement seems a little strange. There were about 12 men in all. Think that's enough to start a church? 12 along with the number 7, biblically is the number of completeness or sufficiency. Uh, 12... Tribes. I think there were 12 loaves of showbread. I think. Uh, 12 disciples. Uh, 12 men were required to start a synagogue. 12 people are enough to start a church. And 12 men plus the Holy Spirit are way more than sufficient to have a church. Let's look ahead uh, to, to verse 11 here. Uh, let's see what's going on. What was happening when this church began to develop. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had, he had touched, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over 
those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by this, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they had fled, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that causes trouble. Trans- cultural transformation is always going to be resisted. You see, there's this temple in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis. And it's one whopper of a tourist attraction. Let me tell you a little bit about it. First off, Artemis of the, Fe- the Ephesians is a fertility goddess. Not to be in con- confused with the Greek goddess of the hunt. Still existing statues of her show her as a, the multi-breasted mother goddess. Dating back to the worship of the Canaanite Baals and Ashtaroths, fertility god worship is always about accumulating more stuff, more bountiful harvests, more productive herds, more sons to work the fields and tend the herds and provide social security in old age. Take your eyes off God, His promises and sufficiency, and focus on the shiny, enticing things of the world. The temple was magnificent, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some form of the temple dated back to 800 B.C., but the one standing in the first century had already existed for about 400 years and was described thusly by one Greek writer. I have seen the walls of the walls and hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, the statue of the Olympian Zeus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the mighty work of the high pyramids, and the tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. The chief feature of the 425 foot by 220 foot structure was its magnificently carved 127 pillars standing about 60 feet high. Incidentally, this this building dwarfs the Parthenon in Athens. It's, it's about four times as large. Uh, let's, uh, let's pick up here in Acts 19.23. About this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for the man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. He gathered with the workmen in similar trades 
and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, that causes quite a disturbance. They gather up a few Christians and they rush into the amphitheater the amphitheater was, I've seen reports that it was as large as 25,000 seats, maybe only 12,000 at this time. Uh, it's hard to say, but it was a big place. And it held a lot of people. And they all began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I can't imagine what this would sound like to these few that were dragged into this place. The only thing I might can associate with it, for me, would be maybe between the hedges over in Athens and listening to that crazed crowd saying, Go, you hairy dogs, for two straight hours. That creeps me out. Well, you might be tempted to think at this point that Jim just couldn't come up with much to say about First Timothy chapter 4, so he's running us down an old rabbit trail. But what I'm trying to convey to you is the spiritually charged atmosphere in Ephesus. Five times the ESV uses the translation heavenly places in Paul's letters to the Ephesians in reference to the spiritual realm. Not up in the sky somewhere, but surrounding the church, the atmosphere that they breathed. In chapter 3, Paul states that his mission is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think back to how that played out with the Jewish exorcists. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? Chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians clarifies, For we did not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now with an understanding of this, envir this environment, this context, let's go back to Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14. What's he talking about here? What is Timothy reading in this letter? And what is it that Timothy is seeing on the horizon? Know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. 
not the house of Artemis, the false god. The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy, I know you see all those pillars. 127. They hold up lies. Timothy, the church, must hold up the truth. He makes this statement, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. You know, I think... uh, for most of us, we've been around the church in the church so long that we hear certain Christians speak certain words and we don't think about really what they mean. We, you know, we think we know, we assume we know, we use the words all the time, but what do they really mean? What does godliness really mean here? This is a translation of a Greek word called eusebeia. And the word by itself uh, implies reverence or respect. And in the Bible, biblically, it implies a life of piety toward God built out of reverence, respect, and worship. A focus on God. Fifteen times in the ESV, this word, Eusebia, is uh, translated godliness. And eleven of them are in First Timothy and Titus. There's also another definition of godliness here that is presented. What is it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. You want to know what godliness is? Look at Jesus. That's godliness. You want to see the Father? You've seen Him in the Son. Then there's this statement, Great indeed we confess is this mystery of godliness. Don't you think Timothy knows the chant of all those Ephesians in the amphitheater? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's the argument, Timothy. Not Artemis. God. There's a war going on, Timothy, and you must not be ignorant of the forces we contend with. Now let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says... There's no ambiguity here. There's no guess. Paul has heard from the Spirit. We don't know how. And I think we don't know how because if he tells us, then that's the way we're going to expect to hear from the Spirit. And and you just can't put the Spirit in a box. But it says here, the Spirit expressly, clearly, loudly, obviously makes this statement. In the latter times, 
What are latter times? A lot of times we think, uh, we read latter times or the last days. We read this sort of terminology in the Bible and we think about the tribulation. We think about the end of time. We think about the time right before Jesus comes back. But that's not what this means. This is characterizing a period of time between the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the time when Jesus comes back. All of it. During this entire time frame. The season in which the church exists, these are the times that He's saying this is going to happen. And we see that from Acts 20, verse 29 through 31a, where Paul collects the elders. Paul is in Miletus and he's on the way back to Jerusalem. And he collects the elders from... uh, Ephesus, they join him and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. There's a war going on, Timothy. An attack is imminent. How will it come? It will come from inside the church, from those who have departed from the faith and are now thoroughly devoted to the teaching or doctrine of demons. Seven times in 1 Timothy and Titus is this word translated as doctrine. Here, it's teaching and almost all the other places it's translated as doctrine. Same word. And we see it picked up again here, translated doctrine in uh, the first verse, which Josh will address next week, the good doctrine that you have followed. Doctrine. It implies to me a systematic set of beliefs or arguments that would lead to a particular world view. Who's going to bring in these teachings? Some who have departed from the faith. Now the first, first chapter of 1 Timothy talks about those who have wandered away, who have made a shipwreck of their faith. But this term is even stronger. And it means they had, you know, the the two the two that uh, he he addresses, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, "I have turned them over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme." I read here that there's a little bit of hope that they may come back, corrected. But these who have departed from the faith are not coming back. Their course is set. They're going to be preaching. Um, They've devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The word insincerity is also translated as hypocrisy. They will be pretending to be something they are not. Disguising themselves as angels of light. As 2 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, talks about. Uh, 
Their consciences are going to be seared. The NASB also includes as with a branding iron. The process of cauterization, which this is using as an image, means that their minds are sealed. They are not going to be open to correct teaching. Paul then gives two examples of the doctrine of demons concerning forbidding marriage and the abstinence from certain foods. Paul doesn't go into explicit detail here, but we know that from Romans 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 through 12, and particularly Colossians 2, 16 to 23, that certain dietary practices were drawing too much attention in these first century churches. Let's look at the passage from Colossians again, two sixteen to twenty three. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Kind of sounds like growth in godliness to me. If if, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, he goes on to talk about uh, food a little bit, and he says, um, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does that mean? Made holy by the Word of God. Let's go back to Genesis. Verse 11 of chapter 1. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The covenant with Noah. 
chapter 9 of Genesis. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here's sort of some of my favorite passages. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. <laughs> it's good. Now that doesn't mean we need to pick up just any old to- toadstool and eat it. That might make us die. That might kill our bodies. But it will not kill our souls. It will not kill our spirits. And that's the statement that he's making here. Simply stated, Paul identifies the doctrine of demons as any teaching which requires additions to or suggests subtractions from the simple yet profound truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, taken up in glory. Well, that was what was going on in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. But what does it have to do with us? First of all, church, the war rages on. The first verse of this passage today, as I mentioned before, identifies the commanders in charge of the warring sides, the Holy Spirit and Satan's demons. I guess it's just a coincidence that the communion message for the previous two weeks involved the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Joseph told us that being raised in the Baptist church, he was trying to recover from a bad case of pneumophobia, the fear of the Spirit. And Jonathan last week told us not to neglect the third person of the Trinity. But the fact remains that the Western church has a very difficult time grasping the reality of the Spirit of truth and a very difficult time of expecting the Holy Spirit to expressly say anything. And demons, you got to be kidding. We're far too rational, too scientific to believe in that sort of thing. No wonder the church in the West is so ineffective. The troops in the trenches have cut the lines of communication with headquarters. And we fight with each other because we don't believe our true enemy even exists. What's the solution? Here it is. Read it. Learn it. Believe it. Practice it. This book tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper, comforter, teacher, convictor, and God. Why do we travel this world proudly or ignorantly ignorantly refusing to consult Him. We aimlessly, men, look for our destination when the guy in the passenger seat's got the map. Ask. Listen. Hear. 
test. Ask, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Luke 11, I think it's verse 13. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to Him who deserves it, who works in radical kids, who leads Bible study? No, no, no. To Him who asks. Listen. Reading the Bible is listening to the Holy Spirit. Hear. Test. If you think you're hearing something, confirm it. Confirm it with somebody who's tuned in. And you know who's tuned in. Your elders meet every Tuesday morning. And we pray. And we listen. And we hear. What about demons and their teachings or doctrine? Should we really concern ourselves with that? People are going to think we're nutcases, aren't they? Well, let's let's look at what uh, Wayne Grudem says in uh, his book, Bible Doctrine, Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith. This is found on page 177. Are demons active in the world today? Some people influenced by a naturalistic worldview that only admits the reality of what can be seen or touched or heard deny that demons exist today. They maintain that angels and demons are simply myths that belong to an obsolete worldview taught in the Bible and other ancient culture. If, however, Scripture gives us a true account of the world as it really is, then we must take seriously its portrayal portrayal of intense demonic involvement in human society. Our failure to perceive that, that involvement with our five senses merely tells us that we have some deficiencies in our ability to understand the world and not that demons do not exist. In fact, there is no reason to think that there is any less demonic activity in the world today than there was at the time of the New Testament. We are in the same time period in God's overall plan for history. The latter days. The church age or the new covenant age. And the millennium has not yet come when Satan's influence will be removed from the earth. From a biblical perspective, the refusal of modern society to recognize the presence of demonic activity today is simply due to people's blindness to the true nature of reality. How do we identify the teaching of demons? How do we identify counterfeit money? We study the real thing. How do we identify the teaching of demons? We study the truth of God. God's Word is truth. Once we identify the demonic teacher, what are we to do with him? You look like a sheep but I perceive you are a wolf. 
why don't you come in and let's talk about it and maybe we can discover some common ground. What do we do with the wolves, Mitch? We shoot them. Wake up, Timothy, and wake up, church. There's a battle of brewing and you must be ready. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places all around us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Emmet, withstand, withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Those sons of Sceva didn't have any breastplate of righteousness. They had no protection. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I've got a little bit of a different take here on these shoes of peace. I don't think they're traveling shoes. I don't think this is about spreading the gospel. I think it's about standing firm. It's cleats. It's about a footing from which you can attack. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation Helmet protects your mind. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying in all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of God. I might say pray for all of us that words may be given to us that when we open our mouth we're proclaiming the mystery of God. Ancient words. Do you think you can use them? Well, what happened to this church in Ephesus? And what happened to the temple? The temple was destroyed uh, around the 4th century A.D. by invading forces. And when crusaders showed up in the 12th century looking for the temple they had heard about, they asked some of the locals, well, where's this temple? And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. There was nobody left following Artemis to rebuild her temple. Yet the church still stands. Here we are. 
Now, what happened particularly to that Ephesian church? Let's take a look at Revelation. I told you we'd get there. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lamp, golden lampstands. I know your work, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. Oh, I want that to be said of this church. But not these words. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. The war way rages on. And church, with Paul, I tell you to wage the good warfare. But let it not be said of us, we have lost our first love. I'm going to close just a moment. With a prayer, the worship team can come back up. And we've talked about casting our eyes downward this morning. And we've talked about godliness. Godliness is a life of piety toward God that is built out of reverence, respect, and worship. And as we begin to worship God, to respond in worship. I'll just read the words of this little praise chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let us pray. Father God, we give You glory, all the glory You deserve. When we look at Your work and Your plan, we say, wow, God. Lord Jesus, we ask You here to continue to make us righteous, to make us godly. And Holy Spirit, be who you say you are in this place. Teach us and guide us. Teach us your strategies. Teach us your purposes. And show off among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.